We're going to begin our time together with a reading from God's Word. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 26. And I'm going to read from verse 36 down to verse 46. That's the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 26, beginning reading at verse 36. Hear the word of the Lord. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time, and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them, and went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. This is the word of the Lord. This week I listened to a Christian broadcaster from the UK who was interviewing a young woman about her experience with the coronavirus. Her name was Megan and she was diagnosed with COVID-19 a few weeks ago and went into self-isolation for 14 days in an upstairs bedroom in her house. Uh, Her husband would leave her meals at the bedroom door. Uh, They kept their distance as best they could. Uh, He got on with his work and with caring for their three-year-old daughter while she stayed in that upstairs room with her phone, her Bible and some other things. In the interview, Megan described the symptoms she experienced. Now we're learning that they're not quite the same for every person who contracts the disease, but Hers were quite serious. She had a terrible time, but praise the Lord, she recovered. One of the symptoms Megan talked about was severe pain in her chest, coupled with difficulty breathing. During the worst of it, she was only able to take short, shallow breaths. Thankfully, she didn't need to go to hospital But it was a very scary time for her, and she testified that uh, it was the Lord who sustained her through that trial. Now, as I listened to Megan tell her story, I thought about Jesus hanging on the cross. As well as the excruciating pain of being affixed to the cross via nails driven through the hands and the feet, 
A crucified man would find it hard to breathe because breathing would require him to lift up his body so that he might fill his lungs with air. And lifting his body meant pushing down on his feet and pulling up on his hands and that would cause a great stab of pain every single time. And so his breathing would become short and shallow. He would go on for some time gasping for air and eventually he would suffocate. That was usually the cause of death and if his legs were not broken he might take between 5 and 24 hours to die. At the moment we are doing all we can to avoid contracting COVID-19. We're staying at home as much as possible. We're washing our hands more than we ever have. We're living under a set of restrictions that limit where we can go and how many people we can be with. We don't want to be infected by this disease. We don't want to experience what Megan did. Even if we were to have much more milder symptoms, we would still prefer not to. None of us would choose to experience the suffering that comes with coronavirus. But here's the thought for our Good Friday sermon. Jesus did choose to suffer. The terrible pain in his chest, the difficulty breathing that he endured as he hung on the cross were experiences that he chose. This morning I'm going to show you three occasions in the crucifixion narrative where we see Jesus choosing to suffer the humiliation and the pain that he knew was coming. Or perhaps we might think think of what we see in these particular scenes as Jesus following through on that decision. Now before we get to them, I need to talk for a moment about an aspect of our Christology, something that perhaps you've never thought about before, but that is vitally important to a proper understanding of the person of Christ and to what actually happened at the cross. In the person of Jesus, there were and there are two natures perfectly united. Jesus was and always will be God and man, fully God and fully man. His humanity is the same as ours, except without sin. And that means that he has a human will, human volition. During his life and ministry, Jesus could make choices like we do. And at the same time, he possessed the will of God, because all that God is, was in Jesus. So, unlike us, Jesus has two wills, a human will and the divine will. Now, this is an aspect of the the union of the two natures that we can't wrap our minds around, but we must believe it or else we get into all kinds of trouble. We actually lose the gospel. And that's a subject for another sermon, a very long one. The church hashed this all out about 1,400 years ago in what was known as the Monothelite Controversy. 
and it affirmed the orthodox and biblical understanding that Christ has two wills. And if you want to study this further, look up Maximus the Confessor. What a great name that is. And look up the Sixth Ecumenical Council that was held in Constantinople in the years 680 and 681. Now I say all of this because when we talk about Jesus choosing to suffer, choosing the agonies of the cross, we need to think of that in terms of his humanity. It was Jesus the man uh, coming to terms with the will of God, uh, submitting to the will of God, even though the will of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit was his own. Even though he, as the eternal son, had decreed the plan of redemption before the foundation of the world. Now, I hope I haven't lost you this morning. Uh, If you didn't quite get all of that, that's okay. Uh, The key point is that we need to think about Jesus in his humanity as we consider these three scenes. The first scene is the one in our reading, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, what we see in his anguished prayer was the normal response of a human person to the prospect of pain. Jesus recoiled at the thought of a tortuous, agonizing death, just as any of us would. Were we in his shoes, we would all have prayed, Oh, my Father, if it were possible, let this cup pass from me. But it was more than just the pain of the cross that was on Jesus' mind. It was everything that was in that cup. Now, the Bible talks about two cups that God has. A cup of salvation, a cup of blessing, and a cup of judgment, a cup of wrath. Let me give you just two examples of the latter. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. Revelation chapter 14 verse 10, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. It was this cup that was in view for Jesus. That's what was coming. The righteous wrath of God that men and women have merited for rebelling against him was going to be poured out on Jesus as he hung between heaven and earth. And he was to drink it all up, right down to the dregs. Jesus had come as the mediator between God and man. He had come as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He had come to be the one final and forever sacrifice that would satisfy God on behalf of sinners. And this is what it was going to take. One theologian expresses it this way. In Gethsemane, we can see that Jesus prays from within his life as a man. 
He pleads to his father because he is motivated by his natural human desires to avoid the pain of hell. I think we can understand something of Jesus' turmoil. I think we can sympathise just a little bit with the agony of his soul as he contemplated the path his father had ordained for him to walk. Because we've all had to face the prospect of pain and suffering. But in truth, our struggles have never been anything like his struggle here in the garden. And the point for our purposes this morning is in seeing where Jesus landed. What did he resolve to do? What did he choose? Verse 39. O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Verse 42. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Verse 46, rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. He he rose up from prayer to meet his betrayer. He did not run the other way. He chose to submit to his father's will. He chose to take that cup and drink it down. He chose the cross. The first scene is here in the garden. The second scene that I want us to ponder is in the high priest's palace. Look down please at verse 57. Matthew chapter 26 verse 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face, and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? And there are two things that I want you to notice here. First of all, note carefully what we're told at the beginning of verse 63. But Jesus held his peace. How many of us would have done that? And we're told plainly that Jesus was falsely accused. 
On top of that, his words about destroying and rebuilding the temple were grossly misrepresented, but he said nothing. And there is no doubt that Jesus could have mounted an overwhelming defence. He could have put to shame those who accused him, and indeed the whole court that sat in judgment of him, but he didn't. And we are reminded of the words of Isaiah in chapter 53. As a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Now the second thing I want you to notice here is Jesus' response when the high priest forced the issue. In verse 63, the high priest said, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And this was the high priest placing Jesus under an oath. He was trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. And Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of God, but the high priest and all of those men assembled with him didn't believe that. In their minds, if Jesus were to affirm that he was the Christ, the Son of God, that would be blasphemy of the most grievous kind and worthy of death. And we won't get into all the details of Jesus' reply, only to note that he did affirm that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And he, he pressed the point even further, identifying himself as the Son of Man in Daniel's prophecy. Uh, in the words of one author, he claims that the day will come when Jesus will be the judge and Caiaphas the culprit. The high priest certainly understood what Jesus was saying, for we're told that he rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. And Calvin has this insightful little sentence in his commentary on this verse, he says, Jesus affirms that he is the Christ, not for the purpose of avoiding death, but rather of inflaming the rage of his enemies against him. It's obvious that by his silence in the face of accusation, and by his speaking when called to do so, Jesus was following through on that choice in the garden. He was making it again in the face of new pressure, in the face of increasing threats to his well-being. He was not saving himself from the cross. He was getting himself to the cross. The third and final scene I want us to look at this morning is over in the Gospel of Luke. So if you would, please turn to Luke chapter 23. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 23. I'm going to read some verses there. Luke chapter 23, beginning reading from verse 24. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross, 
that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For, behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. These verses describe Jesus' journey through the streets of Jerusalem, then out through the gates to the place where he was stripped, made to lie down on the cross, affixed to it by nails, hammered through his hands and feet, and then hoisted up for all to see. It's only three words in Greek, four in our English translation. And we can so easily miss the horror of them. Verse 33, there they crucified him. What I want you to notice here is what we don't see. And what we don't see in this scene. We don't see an angry man, do we? We don't see a man cursing those he passed by or cursing his executioners. We don't see a man raging against his sentence, raging against God. In truth, we see the exact opposite. Nor do we see a man begging for his life or losing control of his emotions. As he shuffles through the streets, bleeding and broken, he maintains his dignity. He even has a tender word of warning for the woman who weep for him. And as his executioners smash those dreadful nails through his hands and feet, he asks his father to forgive them because they don't realise what they're doing. They're just soldiers following orders. Jesus is to them just another Jewish criminal falling under the grinding wheels of Roman justice. An angry, vindictive man. That's what we don't see in this scene. What we do see is what we saw in the garden. What we saw in the high priest's palace. What we see all the way through the narrative. Jesus willingly going to the cross. We see him choosing to drink the cup his father had ordained for him. We see him doing exactly what he said he would do. John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. The question that all of this seems to ask is why? 
Why, why did Jesus do this? Why did he choose to suffer? Why did he willingly go to the cross? The Bible gives us a very clear answer. It was because he loved his, his father and because he loved you and me. In Psalm 40 verse 8, the Messiah is speaking, the Son of God. We know that because of the way the writer to the Hebrews uses this text. The Messiah says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. That was Jesus all through his earthly life. He delighted to do what his Father had ordained. He delighted to do his Father's will. Even in the garden, even in the cross, there was joy set before Jesus. The joy of pleasing and glorifying his Father. He understood that his Father would be glorified in the salvation of sinners by his death upon the cross, as terrible as it was going to be. He knew that what he was going to experience and what it would accomplish would redound to the praise of his Father's matchless grace and infinite wisdom. Jesus loved his Father. And Jesus loved you and me. There is a verse in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that speaks of this so beautifully. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Saviour. Now Paul's language is, Emphatic, Christ hath given himself. He of his own volition offered himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God on our behalf. To satisfy the righteousness of God for us. To merit our forgiveness. To make us acceptable to God. And he did so as an expression of love, because he loved us. Now, the cross is a symbol of torture and death. It's also a symbol of love, the greatest love of all. The very best that we could do, the very best that we could offer to God, could never be a sweet-smelling savour to him. The stench of our sin overpowers everything. But Jesus, the sinless one, the righteous one, what he offered to God on Calvary's cross, that was pleasing. And in him we are pleasing. By faith we partake of Christ's sacrifice and we are cleansed by it forever. God sees us and smells the sweetness of Jesus and not the stench of our sin. Now at this time in our lives, we are focused more than ever on trying to avoid pain and suffering. And that's as it should be. But on this Good Friday, let us remember and let us marvel that our Lord Jesus chose to suffer. He chose the cross 
because he so loves you and me. And let us also think about the choices we are making. Perhaps you notice the first part of that verse in Ephesians chapter 5. I'll read it again. And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. I hope today you will make choices that manifest your love. Like it did for Jesus, that might mean some self-denial and some sacrifice, but that's okay. It's worth it. We need this kind of love in our relationships at the best of times, and so we need it more than ever as we live through this difficult season. Please, love each other today. Love each other with the love of Jesus as your motivation and your example. Love each other well. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. What wondrous love indeed. Amen.